Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast episode titled, Why Early Dementia Diagnosis Matters. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Genentech, Lilly, Azai, and Otska for their support of the GSA Care Toolkit for Brain Health and today's podcast episode. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA, and I'm pleased to serve as the host for today's Momentum Discussion podcast episode. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, who is also a member of the Expert Advisory Panel for the GSA Care Toolkit for Brain Health, Bonnie Berman. Bonnie is the President of the Ohio Council for Cognitive Health, where she is working and working hard, I'll add, to change the culture of aging in Ohio. Bonnie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share your insights about why an early dementia diagnosis matters. Oh, Jen, I'm so thrilled to be here today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Well, in their 2023 Alzheimer's disease facts and figures, the Alzheimer's Association reported some alarming statistics around kickstarting brain health conversations in primary care. Specifically, they reported that only four in 10 Americans will talk with their doctor right away when experiencing symptoms of mild cognitive impairment, such as memory loss or thinking problems. And the association went on to report that 97% of primary care providers wait for patients to raise concerns about their cognition before talking with them, the patient, about their brain health. We recognize in the GSA care framework that kickstarting a brain health conversation is a vital first step in early detection of dementia. So Bonnie, let's start with talking about the barriers. What are the barriers to kickstarting brain health conversations and to step two of that care framework, assessing for cognitive changes to determine if an evaluation for dementia is indicated? Let's start with patient and care partner barriers. Perfect. Well, what I'd like to do, Jen, is kind of focus on what I consider the top six reasons, although everyone is different, and so there are many more we can add. The first barrier is, and I don't know the right word for this, but the narrative or the frame. We have to reframe the discussion and families' understandings about brain health and dementia. Right now, most people think of the dementia narrative as one of tragedy. We need to help people understand that there's so much more to the person than the dementia, and that with an early diagnosis and care, they can continue to live a purposeful and engaged life in the community. And so with the declinist view of aging, we don't think about how we can help people retain their strengths. So, and since the PCP and their team see patients at all stages of the life's journey, it's actually the right place to move this what I call living well with dementia effort forward. They can help individuals impacted by dementia understand that there's so much more we can do to improve the lives of those living with dementia. So that's the first barrier. The second barrier, I think, is that people honestly don't know what dementia is. Most people think of dementia as an actual disease and not a term that's used to describe a range of kind of neurological conditions that affect the brain that will worsen over time. And then since Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia, so many people just think that those are interchangeable. Alzheimer's and dementia are the same. And then with that, so many people think that cognitive changes are just a normal part of aging, which they are not. And so there is this widespread understanding 
misunderstanding, excuse me, about what dementia is. And I think the biggest misunderstanding, Jen, is that the people think that dementia is all about memory loss. But depending on the type of dementia, the symptoms are so far reaching. For example, personality change. The third barrier, I think, is the image. And this gets back to your original question of why so many people are not diagnosed. When most people think of someone with dementia, they visualize or imagine someone who's at the later stage, perhaps in a memory care unit. They don't realize that about 70% of the people who are living with dementia actually live in the community, you know, not in a shared residential setting. And at these early stages, we can provide the support people need to be able to continue to thrive in the community. I think that if more people understood that, they would want to receive the early diagnosis so they could have the supports they need to continue to live with kind of meaning, purpose, and joy. They would want to know because then they knew they could live their best lives possible. The fourth barrier is the stigma. Just last week, I was at an event, and when I asked an elder if he would like some information on brain health and dementia, he responded, I don't need it. I'm not crazy yet. I think that's one everybody understands. And so as we move then into kickstarting the brain health conversation, I have to just say, and I I feel terrible saying this, but most people don't even know what brain health is, and they don't know that there's so much they can do about it. And I think the biggest barrier from a brain health perspective is that we wait till this time when there are concerns to bring it up. Instead, we need to be thinking about brain health throughout the entire lifespan, because what we now know is that many of the same lifestyle changes and common practices that prevent or delay other chronic illnesses also have a positive impact on brain health. And then, of course, I always, I'm a wordsmith, and so to think that words matter, people think they're coming in for a physical, which is what they're told. And if you're coming in for a physical, why would you even be thinking about the brain? So we actually have to think about words. And then the last and final barrier is, while your question is so important, Jen, that you included both the patient and their care partners, but we have to remember that the estimates are about 30% of people who are living with dementia live alone, and about 50% don't have an identifiable caregiver. And as you know, folks who are living alone are at a much higher risk for so many things, malnutrition, not getting needed services, lack of transportation. But most importantly for our conversation today, what we know is that people who live alone with dementia are far less likely to be diagnosed than people who have active care partners. So there's lots of barriers from the individual and care partner perspective, but what are some that are really coming from the other side? And that's the health system provider or societal barriers. Um, you mentioned the stigma, and, um, but other societal barriers as well that really impact these conversations that we need to overcome. Absolutely. That is key. And when we talk a little later about the triple aim, you'll see why that's kind of so important. One of my favorite quotes when we focus on the societal barriers, which is where I'm going to start, is from Wendell Berry, who said, I believe that community in its fullest sense, a place in all its creatures, is the smallest unit of health. And that to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. And that's where the quote ends. And so I believe that community or society really does matter. So let's see how that would impact the position in the health system. If most people, we estimate 70 to 80% of people who are living with dementia are actually living in their communities, we actually need to think about how different sectors of the community view people with dementia. 
so that people living with dementia don't feel isolated, don't feel misunderstood, and don't feel included. So this is something that a lot of people are working towards around the country and in fact the world to create what we call dementia-friendly or dementia-inclusive or dementia-competent communities. And so the question is, you know, what is this? A dementia-friendly community would be a place where you have allies throughout the community so that clinicians will feel comfortable diagnosing people because they would know how to refer them appropriately to the right kind of resources, and people would feel more comfortable accepting the diagnosis. And so the dementia-friendly community is a place where people feel absolutely comfortable having meaningful social actions, and they have the support as their needs change, and they can be engaged in the life of the community, and they also have control over their lives and are able to make choices. And so with that, the most important thing in a dementia-friendly community is that people understand that we can build on people's strengths so that they can live meaningful lives. So if it's really going to be a dementia-friendly community, residents need to be aware of and have learned about dementia. They need to be supported. As importantly, health professionals are educated about dementia and then can help with the needed services and help with the diagnosis. Businesses have folks who understand dementia. Outdoor spaces are accessible so people can get the exercise they need. And so if you're in a community that is striving to become an inclusive community, you can see how that could have a positive impact on the clinician's ability to provide early and appropriate diagnosis in a kind of timely and person-centered way because people are going to want the diagnosis. And so I think it's this kind of transformation within a community that's going to help reduce the barriers that health systems and clinicians feel. So moving back on though to clinicians, if we estimate as you started with that only 40% or four out of 10 Americans would talk to their doctors if they're experiencing early memory or cognitive loss, think of how that would increase if patients and families felt more comfortable getting the diagnosis, they understood the symptoms and they knew the resources would be there and that they understood that there was so much that could be done to help them live meaningful lives. I would add, of course, the typical barriers that clinicians will think about of the lack of time, the lack of feeling comfortable with the tools, being unclear about reimbursement tracks, the lack of up-to-date understanding about how much can be done, and then they have the sense that they need to refer patients to specialists when they suspect cognitive change. And I think these barriers really lead to significant challenges and a, pose a real problem. And the real problem that I think they cause is that if you're only going to get someone over to a specialist, they are no longer getting necessarily the person or patient-centered care that they need because the specialist doesn't have the relationship with the patient that the PCP has. And the only way you can really live your best life with dementia is if we honor what, most, what matters most to the individual. And that's what guides the development of the person-centered approaches. Relationship matters. And so if we're going to kickstart the conversation, there has to be that level of trust and there has to be that person-directed approach. So as an example, if a staff member in a PCP's office asks the pertinent conversation, they're, they're more likely to get the information they need to assess cognitive change over time. So for example, 
if somebody says, how's your granddaughter swimming going? And what's, what's her name again? And the response is a blank stare. You've learned something because the last visit, she talked about her granddaughter. She talked about the swimming and she knew her name. So like everything else, relationship is key. And finally, from a health systems standpoint, you know, the barriers are both significant and challenging. But if you go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, if we change the frame and we have the whole community involved, then more people will be diagnosed and the care that's provided across the system will take into account cognitive changes. And then people, staff will know how best to communicate and what the behaviors are all about. But if we don't have the dementia-friendly community, it will be very difficult to have the education and training to ensure the dementia-capable task force. And of course, needless to say, the current paucity of staff training is one of the key barriers we can overcome. Unfortunately, Bonnie, when we talk with folks, we often say it's so important that there's an early diagnosis. And then someone will say, why is that there's nothing we can do anyway? So let's answer that question of why does it matter? Why is early diagnosis so important with people with dementia? You've spoke a bit about supports and services, but let's dig into that a bit. I just love this question and it's so very important. One of the first things that an early diagnosis would address is the fear that somebody is living with. Can you imagine being thinking, thinking, what's wrong with me? Or a care partner thinking, what's wrong with grandma? Fear is not healthy and it can be eliminated or reduced through an early diagnosis. The second reason I think it's so important is it allows for person-centered care planning strategies. And what I mean is if you are getting the diagnosis early, you can have the conversation with your clinician about what matters most to you. It's one of the phrases I just love. Now, to me, I want I just make sure we're all on the same page. What matters most is not only about the big things like end-of-life decisions, but as importantly, it's about day-to-day life. How do I want to spend my days? Who do I want to see? Where do I want to go? And so it encourages and allows people to let their wishes be known. Without an early diagnosis, this is not going to happen. An early diagnosis is also key because a care partner, and I don't use the term caregivers, I call them care partners, whether they're paid or family members, are able to build on the individual strengths. And there is so much that can be done. And so we want to move from a deficit based, Uh, approach to a strength-based approach. There's always something we can do to help them live their best lives and to slow the decline. And what we find with an early diagnosis, and this is of course a, a key part in the care toolkit, is that we're able to see and know the resources in the community that can really help. The care system and the providers can't do this alone. The term I like to use is it takes allies throughout the community. I also want to bring up something you mentioned earlier because you talked about people impacted by dementia. And to me, that includes the care partners. They too, with an early diagnosis, will experience less fear. They're able to figure out a plan. They're able to learn more about what it means to be a care partner before it's an absolutely overwhelming task. And that time also lets them prepare um, and and learn about what they need to do to take care of themselves. 
Self-care for care partners is so important. And most caregivers don't understand the importance of self-care. And, and the last thing I wanted to add is that there is this whole sense, I think, of advocacy. Once you have an early diagnosis, it is the early stage patients that become the soldiers in the field to help erase the stigma by letting people know, hey, I'm okay. Um, I'm living a good life. And that's really, really important for to be that, that positive um, role model. And so the bottom line is that the care and caring and medical interventions work especially well during the early stage. And if that's the case, why would you miss the opportunity to improve somebody's quality of life and live your best life possible? So there's lots of benefits from the patient and caregiver side. Are there benefits from a healthcare provider or health system if those early diagnoses are made? Well, if you think about it, isn't this actually what somebody went to medical school for? To really think about making sure that you have provided the, the kind of care that somebody would actually want. And if that's the case, it's really so incredibly gratifying for the physician. Secondly, if the physicians know that there's something that they can do to help people live their best lives and slow the decline, they can refer appropriately. And so they're able to do their jobs by letting other people do their jobs. And I think that it's the resources and the ability to know that there is so much they can do and the tools are there. That's why the care toolkit is so important because it's one thing to want to do it. It's another to know how to do it. And I believe that everyone has the best interests of the patient in mind but they may not have the tools. And that's why the care toolkit is so incredibly important. And so you've mentioned the care toolkit several times. How can primary care teams use that? How can it help the whole team? Well, first you mentioned something really important and that is that you said the whole team. The care toolkit is not meant only for the provider. It is meant for everyone on the staff. And so there are so many ways that the toolkit can help teams. First is the frame. There's so many resources that it's empowering. As I said, I believe we have an incredibly talented workforce, but it takes kind of determination. And the care toolkit helps the entire team be determined because it stands in the way of what they want to do, but can't necessarily do because again, they don't have the tools. So I wanna just focus on a couple minutes on what these tools are that the whole team gets. The first thing is that it actually says, this is about the team. We have to make sure everybody has something to do. This is not only about the provider. So it changes that frame. The second thing is, so it moves it from the PCP to the entire team. The second thing that's why it's really helpful for the team is it focuses on brain health, not just decline. And that's, that's extraordinarily important throughout the lifespan. The third is that it builds on the sense of relationship, which is so important. The only folks that can really make this happen are the people that have the relationship. And sometimes it's the assistant, it's other folks that you are working with, that you have a relationship with, and they can really help and inform the clinician. 
The next thing that the care toolkit does, which I think is extraordinary, is that it really embraces the role of the care partner. And I think that is key here. It also advances what is called a person-centered approach. It's not a one-size-fits-all, so it doesn't say to the clinical team, here's what you should do. Instead, it gives the guidance and allows the care team to adapt what they're doing to the needs of the patient. And I think that is so very important to empower people. And so as the care team thinks about the resources that are in the care toolkit and that they will refer to, they realize that they can actually add their own that they can think about. So for example, if this particular patient is very spiritual, they can talk about some of the faith-based opportunities. If they are someone who belongs to a gym, they can talk about some of the things that they might learn there. So it's the adaptable nature and the ability to make it work for your team that is so important. And then I couple that with once they have seen through the last part of the care toolkit, that they have these amazing community-based allies, they are ready to go. So talking about community-based allies, how can others in the community, like people working in libraries or businesses or other community settings, use parts of the care toolkit to raise awareness of brain health and encourage that early detection? Well, Jen, I love the idea of broadening the reach of the toolkit And let's put it in the frame of dementia-friendly communities or communities that are thinking of becoming more dementia-friendly. Our first aha moment here in Ohio with this approach actually happened when you came up and presented about the CARE Toolkit at a caregiving conference that was being hosted by Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging and was supported by Ohio's Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program, or ARC-WEB. And after your presentation, There was a woman from the library system who was caring for her mother who had dementia. And I believe she was also caring for a sister as well. She said to all of us, I'm going to take this to my primary care provider and tell them I want to be assessed. She didn't say, I think I'm going to ask them if I should be assessed. She says, I'm going to tell them I want to be assessed. And from that one experience, Jen, we realized that by sharing parts and parcels of the toolkit throughout the community, we could actually empower families and others with concerns to actually be the soldiers in the field to help make a difference, to be able to go to their PCPs and say, have you seen this? So here in Ohio, as communities think about becoming dementia-friendly or dementia-inclusive, we actually introduce the importance of sharing the toolkit with all sectors. So in addition to the folks learning about early diagnosis from trusted sources, for example, their library, it also gets people thinking about what role they can play. And hopefully over time, they will show up as a resource in their community. So they may say, you know, I run a business, they learn about it from the library. I run a business and maybe what we should do is have something posted from the CARE Toolkit. I love that domino effect. So I believe that the CARE Toolkit is actually the secret sauce that will bring the medical community and the various sectors together to ensure that those who are living with dementia in their communities can continue to live with what we call purpose, meaning, um, and joy. And, and, and another example, think about the business community. If employers learning through the care toolkit or part of the care toolkit knew more and were able to have an earlier diagnosis for their family members, 
their ability to continue their employment is enhanced. They'd understand more about supports, respite, decreased burden. In fact, I'm telling you, I will go, we go as far as to recommend the use of the care toolkit in a number of different capacities that should be a part of every dementia-friendly initiative. And that really is our goal here in Ohio, and we hope to spread it nationwide. Well, this has been a great discussion, Bonnie. I so appreciate your time and your wonderful insights. It's always a joy to listen to you, and I always learn something from you. You're such a wonderful, wonderful champion for this cause. And I want to just reflect on when you listed out things of why early diagnosis matters. The one that I'm going to mention them all, but a couple really stuck with me. And one of those is the relief of fear for the patient and their, the individual and their care partner. And that's so important. And then the person-centered care planning, what matters most in the day-to-day life, not just the end of life. Uh, years ago, when I talked about care planning with folks in nursing homes, I would say, does your care plan, it might tell me how to give them a bath or how to mm-hmm. help them dine, but does it tell me what makes life worth living to them? And I heard about care partners are able to build on individual strengths. So rather than the doom and gloom of a diagnosis, we can look at the strengths. We can build that person's care around what they're still able to do and how they're able to contribute. And I love the phrase allies in the community. That's who our resources are, our allies. And then that early stage patients are the soldiers in the field. One of my colleagues who's on a work group here in my area uh, is a therapist who has early onset dementia, and he certainly is a champion. And you also mentioned that people can be referred for medical care. We're in this exciting time of disease-modifying treatments, and what a gift And folks are able to, if they can get that early diagnosis, potentially be part of something that can really improve life, improve quality of life for them. So I, I wanted to mention those, but what are some key points you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think the most important thing I would like to leave folks with, getting back to those that you just mentioned, is that we need to make sure that people understand that cognitive aging is not the same as cognitive, a a disease or something that is not normal. And so when you talk about the fear, you're going to find a lot of people that are fearful that they've got dementia and they're going to find out these are just some of the normal changes that happen with aging. And there is such a thing as cognitive aging. And we aren't going to do something about the cognitive aging, like how I lost my phone this morning, right? But that's okay because there's other very positive aspects of cognitive aging, like the wisdom, the wisdom for me to say, I actually don't care where my phone is. I've got something more important to do, but we put things in context. And so I think that understanding that some of these cognitive changes are okay and to be expected will eliminate some of that fear. But the other part is with the early diagnosis and to know that there's something we can always do, especially now in this environment as of even a week ago, people will relax. You watch people take a deep breath. They didn't know that. And that is, it's gotta be the most gratifying thing there is. And then the other thing I wanted to add was the care toolkit is about brain health. And we need to understand as a society and as 
clinicians and everybody else, that there is so much you can do throughout the lifespan to enhance your brain health. And you say, look, what is that? And they're no different than the things that you can be doing to prevent other chronic diseases. And the last thing I wanted to add is you can also do the same kind of things, exercise, get the right amount of sleep, eat the right foods, be social, you know, keep your blood pressure in check, check those kinds of things. Once you have an early diagnosis, there are always things you can do to help delay the symptoms. And so to empower people, the care toolkit empowers both the care teams, it empowers the care partner, it empowers the individual who is living with the dementia, And as a organization, it really has changed what we do. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie, for joining me today and sharing all that you and your colleagues are doing there in Ohio, really to change the culture, to improve dementia care and to improve brain health across the state. It's so exciting to see the momentum there. Thank you to all those who listened uh, to our episode of the GSA Momentum Discussion Podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable to listen to as I did to talk with Bonnie. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org dot org.